Good afternoon or good evening or good whatever time it is wherever you're watching this. Derek Glover here with you from the Monroe Church of Christ. Uh, our midweek Bible study this week is pre-recorded as the previous ones have been. I uh, This will be the last one we do pre-recorded. We'll be back to live next week because I will be back in town. I'll have been at uh, WCYC, Wisconsin Christian Youth Camp, for uh, a couple of weeks. And so I had to get these done ahead of time for you to be able to enjoy. Um, and I hope you enjoy them. I mean, I enjoy doing them. I hope they're beneficial to you. In this class, uh, we've been talking about how we got the Bible. How did we get the 66 books we have? Where did they come from? Who wrote them? How were they written? How were they preserved? And how do they get to us? Last week, we did a deep dive into some books of the Apocrypha, uh, things that are in some canons, but not in others, that are considered something between useless and scriptural, but uh, seem to have been of some importance to some folks, uh, both Jews and Christians at different times, and that were present in even Protestant Bibles until the late 1800s. So relatively recently, they were considered important enough for us to know and to have and to study. So I hope you enjoyed that. And now we're going to get into some of the history of the translations and the printings and the King James Bible and all of those things and how we get to where we are today. So now we're going to, now the books have been written, the copies have been made, the manuscripts have been preserved, they've been translated in various languages to this point, and, and now we're going to start talking about the history of how we get to where we are now. But there is a question. The question is, how do we know? How do we know that what we have today is right? If all these things have been copied and all these things have been translated and all these things have been found and all these changes made over all these years, all these revisions, how do we know that what we have today is what we had then, that it really is the Word of God? Well, there are many, many stories because the answer is we have manuscripts and we check them and we look for them, and we go back and we find the oldest documents we can find and we compare them. And I will tell you that most of the time when we make those comparisons, we discover that they're right, they're accurate. You can go right now uh, to the you know, British Library, uh, you can go to various libraries throughout the world, and they have manuscripts and copies of of these documents, and you can look at them, and you can hold your Bible right there, and you can go to um, to Israel and look at uh, the you know the Book of Isaiah, manuscripts of it, very old ones, and you can read. And if you read Hebrew or Greek or a biblical language, you can look at it, and you can see that it matches. We have the words. So I want to tell you a story in this time this evening. One of many, many stories out there about these manuscripts and how they've been found and how they've been preserved. I want you to know about a man named Constantine von Tischendorf. Constantine von Tischendorf lived in the 1800s, so not that long ago, okay? He was a genius. He was a scholar of the highest order. He mastered several ancient languages, and he had a mission in life. His mission in life was to reconstruct the New Testament. Because in his studies and in his work and, and in his translations, he became very frustrated. See, he wanted to reconstruct the New Testament so we could know that we have the right words. Because there had been some questions, some developments, some changes, some discrepancies, and some conflicts 
about whether or not the words we had in the Bible at that time were the right words. And so he decided he wanted to reconstruct the New Testament. In 1841, he translated a Greek New Testament manuscript, but he became very, very frustrated. The quality of the manuscript was very poor. The number of times he had to guess at a word or fill in the gap on a word, he wasn't satisfied. He was a bit of a perfectionist. And so he set about journeying the world to find the oldest manuscripts of the New Testament. He went to Paris. You see, you had to, there's no money in this, so you got to raise money. And how do you raise money? You show people what you can do and that you have value to bring. So he went to Paris, and he found a manuscript there called the Ephraim Manuscript, a very old manuscript, uh, an ancient text, an ancient script. It's dated sometime in the 400s, um, and it's very old and so very important, and yet it was difficult to translate because it was a manuscript of the New Testament, and then it had been erased, rubbed out, scraped, and a man named Ephraim turned it on its side and wrote his sermons on them. And so this manuscript presented problems, but this is before computers and before the the ways that we can use technology to identify layers of writing. But Tischendorf had incredibly good eyes, and he painstakingly poured over the Ephraim manuscript and translated it and presented it to the scholars of his day, and they were astounded. And he had the money he needed. And he took off journeying through Europe, going to the libraries uh, and seeking out the manuscripts, and he was still not satisfied. So he went to the Middle East, what we now call the Middle East, which is today a bit of a mess and was even then a bit of a mess. It was a dangerous place with warring tribes and nations that had been carved up by Great Britain and later the United States with lines that make no sense because of the tribes. The people on one side of the border don't want to be on that side of the border. They belong to the other side of the border, but there's a border. It was so dangerous that Tischendorf actually wrote a goodbye letter to his brother because he didn't think he was going to come back. Well, he did come back, and he journeyed eventually to Egypt. And in Egypt, at the site of what is considered to be Mount Sinai, there is a monastery of the Coptic Church called St. Catherine's. Tischendorf goes with some of his compatriots and presents his credentials at the gates of St. Catherine's, which is fortified because bandits and marauders and even the government can sometimes shift and threaten. And so St. Catherine's is a bit of a fortress. They don't let just anybody in there. These Coptic um, uh, priests uh, uh, and had to see to his credentials. And when they were satisfied, after he waited like a week, they hoisted him up to the gate on a, on a beam, on a rope. So he was carried up and he's in St. Catherine's. They put him up in a, in a room, a single room, and they began bringing him manuscripts and they began bringing him documents. And he is very disappointed to discover the condition that they're in. Again, none of them read any of this stuff. These are lost languages, but Tischendorf reads them, and he's very disappointed to see what there is. Eventually, they brought him a basket, and he, they were told, this is worthless, this is garbage, this is nothing. And he starts rifling through the basket and finding little leaflets and little pieces, and he looks at them and discovers it's the oldest Greek he's ever seen. 
how, how do we know that? Um, well, think about, like, I remember when I was in elementary school, I remember at a certain age, we learned how to write in cursive. We might have been the last generation, my generation, to learn to write in cursive. They don't teach it anymore. If I wrote something in cursive and handed it to my son, he would not be able to read it. It might as well be a different language because our handwriting changes, our styles change. And Tischendorf looks at this and he knew it was older than any manuscript he'd ever seen. And he got excited. He asked where it came from and they said, well, we keep that basket by the fireplace. We use it for tinder to light the fire to make our tea. They'd been burning it. They had been burning one of the oldest manuscripts, oldest New Testaments that Tischendorf had ever seen, and he had seen a lot of them, possibly the oldest in existence. And so he's, he gets, he's getting excited about this, and they're getting nervous. They think maybe he might be a thief. So they kick him out, and he begs with them as he leaves, please stop burning them, don't burn them. So he leaves. He publishes his findings. They had given him, before he was kicked out, 40 three sheets, about a third of what they had. So there was another 86 that he was still searching for. But he goes out, he leaves, and he publishes his copies of the 43 that he had, but he does not reveal where he got them. He doesn't want people going and trying to, to get them. That would hurt his cause. It takes him nine years Nine years to raise the money to go back. So he goes back to St. Catharines again. Again, it's been nine years since he was there, since he got excited and they kicked him out and he got away with just the 43. He goes back and he's looking for the other 86. When he goes back, he discovers that no one remembers where they put them. Now, how do you misplace the oldest copy of the New Testament? I don't know, but they did. And so he begins searching again. They begin to give him what they have, and he begins reading what they had. And they bring in a more modern book. And as he looks at it, he realizes instantly, this is far too contemporary for what I'm looking for. But as he leafed through the pages, there was a bookmark, a small piece of paper that had been cut to mark a page, and he recognized it. It was the same handwriting, the same scribe, the same Greek manuscript he had found nine years earlier but he knew if he got excited they would run him off again so he knew they were cutting it up into bookmarks and he tries to play it cool now he leaves again with more information and he's collected more and he publishes what he has and for the first time tells where he found it but he still needs to find the complete set the other 86 that he does not have so Alexander II, who was the Tsar of Russia at the time, sent him back with funding. Now, how that happened was uh, Tischendorf was of some Russian ancestry. And so uh, he gave, gifted to Alexander II a translation of the Bible. And so Alexander II pays him and sends him back six years after the second journey. So I'll do the math here. It's been 15 years since he was first hoisted up to the gate of St. Catherine. Uh, it has been 15 years since he found those 43 pages, those 43 leaves. It's been six years since he found the bookmarks 
and was forced to go home empty-handed to publish what he knew. It's been 15 years and he's running out of time because the average lifespan is not much more than about 45 years old, uh, 50 years old, and he's reaching that very rapidly. When he gets to St. Catherine's, he's allowed to have access to anything he wants, but he finds their library in complete disrepair. It's a mess. It's a mess because the government of the time, much like governments today, would not let them repair anything that was broken or damaged without a permit. And the government took great pain to punish religious people sometimes. And so when something fell over or broke or rotted or fell apart, they just left it. And he's finding rotted, destroyed manuscripts. Tischendorf thinks that this is the end of the journey. And as he's just a couple of days away from leaving, he sits with a steward, like a janitor slash accountant, right? A steward, a keeper of these documents. And they're having tea. And the steward says to him, you know, I've, I've read a Septuagint before. And Tischendorf says, oh, oh, you have? And then he says, yeah, I'll, I'll get it. And he pulls down a book, wrapped up, and hands it to Tischendorf, who opens it, and there are the other 86 leaves. He's got them. Not just those, but also the Old Testament and the Apocrypha. He's got it all. And it is the oldest manuscript of the entire Bible that he's ever seen. Now again, he stays calm. Bubbling on the inside, he stays calm and he, and he says, you know, I think I'll take this back to my room. Maybe I'll read it and help, help me go to sleep. Just kind of acts bored with it. He gets to his room. He drops to his knees. He thanks God, asks for his help, and stays up for the entire night translating what he can. The next day, he tells them that he, he needs to take this with him. He needs more time. And he asks permission to take it. He says he won't leave the country. He just wants to go to Cairo. And he had to go on ahead and get permission from the abbot who was in Cairo and have people bring the documents to him. But in, 12 days later, he gets the manuscripts. And he spends two months with a couple of fellow scholars translating, not only translating the entire Bible, but also identifying, marking, and logging every author because they were able to differentiate based on style and handwriting and other notations who the other people or, or the designations between the other people that were involved in the writing. This is amazing scholarly work. And other scholars have looked at this work and they have found that he didn't make any mistakes. So Tischendorf had his ancient Greek, not just New Testament, but now Bible, he had it translated, and then he went and he published it. And that's a very rare thing even for today because a lot of historians, archaeologists, and biblical scholars, when they make a discovery like this, they keep it hush-hush. That is their life's work. That is their legacy. They don't publish these things. But Tischendorf did. Um, through Alexander II, those manuscripts were purchased um, from St. Catherine's. On the condition that if St. Catherine's ever wanted them back, they would be returned. But there was some money paid, and the Russians actually got these manuscripts. Um, in the 30s, uh, Great Britain purchased them. 
and they are in uh, today uh, the, the British Library um, where you can go look at them. They're called uh, the, the Sinaitic Manuscripts, okay, the, because of Mount Sinai, the manuscripts that were found there. They are, even still to this day, the oldest complete manuscripts of the Bible that we have. They date back to the 300s A.D., very early, very early. And they have been translated uh, into the uh, Sinecanus Codex, okay? The, the Codex Sinecanus. Uh, there's two. There's the Sinecanus and the, and the Vaticanus, both codexes. Codex is just a, it's a translation. Um, and, and those two are the oldest and also as many times as we check them, they're the most accurate. Tischendorf, and by the way, we owe a lot to Constantine van Tischendorf because his work and his relentless and persistent pursuit help us to know with some degree of certainty that we have the words, that what we read and what we have today is what they had then because we have the manuscripts. We can trust our Bible and we know this because of the work and the translation work and the scholarly efforts of people like Constantine Van Tischendorf. We know we have the words. The Sinaitic Manuscripts and the Codex Sinaicanus, the Codex, the Codex um, Vaticanus, help confirm that for us. So I wanted you to know that story. Now, uh, next week and as we move forward, we're going to begin talking about how history uh, plays out with the translations of the Bible. We'll talk about the King James. We'll talk about the influences of different religious leaders. We'll talk about the Catholic Church, and we'll talk uh, more and more about how this evolves and how you and I live in such a wonderful time to hold the Bible in our hands. But I wanted you to know about Van Tischendorf and his efforts before we did that. Thank you so much for joining us. I look forward to being back with you next week live right here, wherever you're watching uh, this study.